Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. <laughs> this is Michael Mann, and I ride with Excuse me. Wow. <laughs> we're some rough and rowdy boys on this podcast. I That's... say leave the burp in. <laughs> Fuck it, we're going live. <laughs> Welcome to Extended Clip. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And we're here on the fourth stop of the Extended Clip reunion tour, live from the tour bus, moving forward and backward through history yet again. We were away for a few weeks. I went away. I worked on a movie. Malcolm did some soul searching. <laughs> JT put his fucking boots to the ground and worked hard. And now we're back. Um, and joining us for the first episode of Leg 2 of the Reunion Tour, uh, you may know him from this podcast because he is the most frequent guest of the podcast. So, of course, we're going to have back Ryan Swen. What is up? Uh, not much. Uh, thank you. Again for having me. It's it's always fun. It's always fun being on this. I was so glad when you uh, decided to return, at least for this reunion tour. So being able to be a part of it once again is uh, is always fun. So thank you. Well, you know, someone's got to be thankful, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> someone's got to be glad we're bringing the podcast you know, back. Before we, oh yeah, all the guests. Um, yeah. Before, before <laughs> the we get, people who got to go on a podcast again. <laughs> people uh, before we, before we go forward, you know, we do have to acknowledge it is Eddie's birthday. You know, oh, I mean? come so on everyone, on, I want everyone on mic to say happy birthday, Eddie. No, 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 no don't sing it. Just say happy birthday. Yeah, I was gonna say. Are we doing it? No in one's unison? doing it. No okay. one's doing, doing it. Let's unison? move on. No, no one's Happy doing birthday, it. So let's move on. It was it, yeah. I guess by I, the time you hear this, I'm already thing. I'm already 28 and a half. By the time you hear this, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. I just you know I just show respect. <laughs> Birthdays, holidays, they mean things. If you knew anything yes. about me and knew how much I hated my birthday, <laughs> you would know that that wasn't in respect. <laughs> You're, you're so into you're like God, these, God, I hate these, these birthdays they're just so commercial yeah it's a what a, a gift whatever wrapping. happened to happy holidays and like think about all the waste with the wrapping paper and oh whatnot. don't get me started <laughs> food waste come on now uh so the time periods that we're covering on this week's episode in timeline a 1924 to 1926 just just getting that tail end of the full-on silent era one last time and in the newer dimension, timeline B, 2014 to 2016. So the films we're talking about are, well, for timeline B, I'll say first, uh, a film that I thought was pronounced Joja, <laughs> but is actually pronounced... Hauha. Hoha. Hauha. Hauha. It's Hauha, Eddie. Hauha. How High by Method Man. And Red Man. That's and Red movie. Man. Uh, they're really the auteurs of the movie, you know, like I, <laughs> yeah. uh, but anyway, uh, how is a film from 2014 directed by Lissandro Alonso. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it garnered quite a reputation on the art house festival circuit. And it stars a very sexy Vigo Mortensen. <laughs> it's like, a it, it was a popular art house release at the time. Um, and it's, I, I, I want to say it's grown in stature only because I've never heard anyone say anything bad about it in the last <laughs> yeah. eight years. So we could call call that growing in stature. On the other hand, 
you know, that film, time will only tell where it stands in terms of being a classic. This one, uh, the history book has been written, it's been rewritten, it's been re 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 rewritten. It's greed. Uh, kind of the holy grail of cinema. Uh, that is the original, the real cut of greed. Uh, you know, release the Von Stroheim cut, as it were. Um, for those who don't know, of course, this is Eric Von Stroheim's, you know, uh, really magnum opus that was mutilated. Uh, so so violently that it led to him, you know, uh, among other films that were also mutilated by studios, led to him quitting directing and just being an actor for the rest of his career. This is a film that was anywhere between eight and ten hours in its uh, preview showings. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are various accounts of this, of course, uh, so they probably didn't all see the same cut or whatever, mm-hmm. but then trimmed down quite a bit. He produced a four-hour version of it, and they were like, we can't even do this. Like... <laughs> Just get out of here. Irving Thalberg's in charge now. This man's got dollar signs in his eyeballs. And uh, we're going to chop it to two hours and 20 minutes from the roughly nine-hour original version. So many people have looked for the lost footage. Obviously, it's not found because it was burnt uh, for very little money. Like, it was burnt for, like, the silver that comes out of nitrate, uh, which is just, like, that's so... That's, like, taking your DVDs to like a fucking like plastic recycling place that gives you a little money but like your dvd collection is like orson wells's unfinished films or something like that discussing dvd collections uh nowadays just makes me think of a closer look oh yeah <laughs> how dvds are currency in that shout out, to a, look. Shout out yeah. to a closer look the closer look boys will be in the studio not to record the podcast don't get your fucking my hopes God. up they're just gonna be here later because it's my birthday we're gonna do some yeah. off mic podcast yeah we're gonna do some yeah, yeah. Uh, we're, we're gonna do some off mic podcast <laughs> That's what I call conversation with your friends. Just, you know, it's all warm ups. It's all warm ups. It's all prep for this. Uh, So greed was released in this two hour, 20 minute form and written about extensively for, you know, as long as cinephilia has existed, uh, whether it's from a business perspective or an artistic perspective or, you know, the auteur theory, of course, this is one of the great auteur texts. Uh, in 1999, there was a release on everybody's favorite cable channel, Turner Classic Movies. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. The cable company that supports a man who admitted to liking incest porn on television. If you remember a very... Oh, Ben. <laughs> the best way to experience this movie would be, if you have to watch it, turn it on TV at home when it comes down to DVD and turn the sound completely off. <laughs> And then as you're cleaning the house or you've got a party going on, you that's, need the kids um, to stay occupied, that'll make this a lot more That's how I had to watch uh, incest porn. What? You have to turn the sound down. Then it's just porn. I'm so confused. Okay. <laughs> or... Hello, everybody. I'm Ben Mankiewicz. Welcome to TCM. I thought you were talking Ted Turner. Yeah. No, I was like, no, no, no. Ted Turner was the man. Like, that's I, different. I, I've taken an anti-Ted Turner. Well, TCM's pretty nice. I guess TCM's I, yeah. nice I got to I got to give yeah. Ted Turner credit. But yeah. it is... Once he got over his colorization thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a little rough. I, yeah. thought, I thought we're all leftists, though. I thought we hated billionaires and shit. No, but he's married to, like, the biggest leftist ever, Jane Fonda. So, so he's, got, he's, got, he's got a hood pass? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's got a hood pass. <laughs> he said... No Viet Cong ever called me a capitalist. Uh, anyway. <laughs> that went better than I thought it was. Yeah. <laughs> I was like. Look, I'm 28. I can say what I want now. But the TCM reconstruction, uh, as it's referred to, and I think that's the proper term, uh, uses a lot of stills 
In fact, the entirety of new footage comes from stills and intertitles. There's no new footage in the reconstruction. But using the shooting script, the continuity script, uh, the latest available version of it, and using all of these like publicity photos and on-set photos uh, of the sets and the characters in those sets, they're able to reconstruct kind of a slideshow version of the movie. Um, and I, you know, the effects vary. Some of them are great. Some of them are not so great. Uh, it kind of became a little trend. Like there's the the quote unquote extended version of the Judy Garland A Star Is Born that has yeah. like five minutes worth of that as well. The unrated version. Yeah, These the, the unrated un- version. <laughs> I watched read the unrated version with extra stills and promo photos. <laughs> Ken Burnsified across my screen. That is that is the original unrated release, huh? Was it's the- true. <laughs> um. So anyway, uh, this reconstruction, you know, of course, like everything it boasts is being like, finally, you get to see the real greed when (laughs) that's not the case. Uh, It's the work of a of an archivist, just like the other side of the wind, just like the uh, work print version of Touch of Evil, Mm -hmm. uh, you know. uh, And so it's just one of these projects of cinema history that I think is endlessly fascinating uh, that TCM version being like a sub project within it, but the general project of trying to figure out what greed really was. And obviously it's such a great thematic stand in for its own meta story. Mm-hmm. You know, it is just all about greed, whether it's even the greed of a filmmaker to make a fucking 50 real movie or whatever <laughs> that was. I mean, the dude really thought people were going to sit there for nine hours and watch McTeague and Trina. And like I would, but yeah. the general public in 1924, come on. I mean, what are they going to do anyways? Though? Yeah, <laughs> but then you also have the greed of people like Thalberg, you know, cutting it to bits and being like, get it out, get it out. Just, it has to be two hours, 20 minutes tops, you know. Um, and so I just think like as a meta narrative, as an auteur text, and just as a plain old simple, good old silent movie, this just totally deserves its status as high as it goes. And uh, five bullets next segment, right? Oh, you guys have it. <laughs> oh. I was like, all right, I'm fine. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. I was going to know that uh, Irving Thalberg, maybe the only character... Um, who's actually a real person in Babylon? Oh, right, really? Chazelle. Yeah, everyone else like oh, they they mentioned. Oh, like Buster Keen's at this party, or Garbo's mm-hmm. going to be there, but you never actually see anyone yeah. except uh, Bellberg <laughs> is played by Max Minghella. Wow! You see the back of Buster Keaton's head. Like, yeah, oh. you don't even get that. <laughs> yeah, you don't get a Hitchcockian <laughs> silhouette. Yeah, <laughs> Babylon. You saw Babylon? Yes, I was at the first showing. Interesting. Yeah, with Chazelle up in the. Q&A and Brad Pitt and Marco Robbie and oh, things like that. Oh. High, high rollers. Yeah. Those could have walked in there and changed the world if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's save the Babylon talk. I think we'll get to it on our new movies segment. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. We're already 10 minutes in. True. we got to start talking about I greed. Li- I live in Babylon, so. That's true. Um, <laughs> JT, I'm going to throw it to you. Had you seen this version before or any version of this film before uh, this No, week? not at all. I also, like, I got to say... I like I don't know I some the sometimes I'm familiar with these films to some extent like greed I was a little bit of aware of the reputation but a lot of times I'm just like raw dogging it with the movies you know I don't want to know anything I do the research after I just in the group chat I heard you like talking about like 
which cut is the preferred. And I'm like, well, you, I, we're going the longer one. Okay. Like reconstruction. That sounds interesting. And then I got to say, I was a little pissed off yeah. that it was stills for as like reconstruction. You lying son of a bitch. <laughs> like, come on, man. This, but um, I, like as the movie progressed, I feel like what you were saying earlier, Eddie, about it just being like, I, like obviously it's like an incomplete like document, but I really value the full scope that it gives you of the movie. Like if I had watched like the two hour like mutilated sort of version where you don't sort of see the like sort of s- the sprawling side stories that occur. I-, I-, I don't know. It's this is nice because it gives you a little little taste of what could have been and i i don't know i love this kind of a story like a big like when i was writing my letterboxd review of this that is just like it made me realize because i've done this type of review many times but there are so many <laughs> old movies like the classic hollywood is like all about how like pussy and money is destroying the world. (laughs) And that's, uh, I mean, that's like a key building block to cinema. Um, But yeah, no, I love how intense and like predestined, like the story feels, like especially like with all these like sort of subplots and side characters, you get the sort of like what ifs in these characters' lives. You have like sort of samples of like, different kinds of people McTeague and Trina could wind up being like how their life could have gone differently you see McTeague's like drunk Irish like dad um at the beginning and like you kind of get a feeling I was like oh like that son of a bitch is probably gonna wind up just like dad uh because the movie's called greed and uh I I don't know it's um I love the intensity and the scale of it um yeah i don't know you know with greed it's kind of like kind of like an epic you know it's an epic right it has this feeling overarching feeling it's called greed you could kind of see where things are gonna go and that's not a negative thing i think that kind of helps kind of like you know the restoration process in a way where it's like you don't know exactly maybe you know where um von strahim wanted to go exactly But like you see, it's, you know, the themes are so strong and, you know, the scenes that remain kind of are so powerful that you could kind of get the ebb ebb and flow of everything else that uh, exists within it. Like, Ryan, you saw the two hour cut, right? The theatrical cut. Yeah, I've seen it twice and both times were actually in the theatrical cut. This second time actually was a reconstruction on KG that was just like Mm -hmm. taking footage from uh, from the, you know, from TCM the TC- oh, yeah, yeah. so it's like so the it's like tinting better, and the yeah, better quality and you yeah, know, like because it's only available as a laser disc. Yeah, um, so <laughs> Great has never been released on a DVD or Blu-ray, which is wow, crazy. insane. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, but- we could get Marriage Story though. <laughs> <laughs> so that's good. It's sort of fascinating to me, like cases like this or Amberson's, like films that have still retained like such potency and and such grand stature even though the even though the forms that we know them as are uh, necessarily incomplete mm-hmm. uh, there's just like the like it sort of leads especially for me in thinking about the film 
like whether I'm evaluating the film as is or if I'm evaluating a film that I know that exists outside of the film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like there's there's that sort of interesting um, push and pull. But for me, uh, greed. I think that what I especially found so fascinating this time on watching it, um, and what moved me even more is just how much even the uh, relatively streamlined one forty minute cut. It's it's very focused. Like basically, there's only three characters that actually matter mm-hmm. in the in the whole film, and it's and basically it just tracks their the the way they slowly tear each other to pieces. But there's also just these moments where you get a suddenly you get a fuller sense, like when they're getting uh, when uh, Trina and McTeer are getting married. There's this funeral procession that's going on outside. Yeah. You first see just so many people lined up in the background, then you get that dis- that uh, that dissolved to the to the funeral and then back like it the way that he's able to uh suggest these things that are are much larger and incorporate all of their uh travails into this uh wider canvas even without the um extensive subplots that uh, that stroheim had uh i think is is really remarkable there's a misconception about this in terms of uh stroheim's like faithfulness to the book and like that he wanted to film every page quote unquote he did more than that. Uh, if you read Rosenbaum's essay about the reconstruction and the flaws of it, and also the virtues of it, um, there is a bit about how one of the excised things that's in the continuity script is like it would have been like 15 minutes of film before the first page of the novel even takes place, you know? And there's even a segment apparently of like, all the characters, just what they do on a normal Saturday. And it's this like accumulation of detail that's so incredible because it's it's not just realism. It's also very expressionistic and symbolic in a lot of ways. So the fact that he's able to like establish this realism and this depth of character, even just for the three main people, and uh, as well as the two couples that appear more in the four-hour cut, they get more fleshed out storylines there's the kind of evil couple uh who's out there trying to get the money from them uh zirkow and his lady and then there's the old couple who you know uh are are like across the street neighbors and always longed for each other and then finally find love toward the end in a really beautiful sequence in the reconstruction just of the still the the publicity stills or onset photos or whatever but they do them in full color uh, and it's like, yeah, it's kind of incredible. Uh, I really love how it breaks the realism of that. Um, the the long term payoff of it, especially because you kind of just see that old couple yeah, throughout the it's movie. Just the same thing. It kind of remind. Well, it kind of reminds me yeah. of what David Lynch pulled off in yeah. Twin Peaks: The mm-hmm. Return when Ed and Norma finally embrace, mm-hmm. and like, there's nothing you could do but just like cut to the trees and have Otis Redding blasting. In this case, it's there's nothing you could do but fully like colorize yeah. their their stills and make it look like you're watching a slideshow of like a wedding album or something like mm-hmm. that. And it's really like of all of the side character stuff, I think that's the most effective. I think the coolest is how Zerkow is just a goblin. Like yeah. there are these crazy uh expressionistic designs that are I think all just his fantasies about stealing the money and you have all this these great tints on him just like uh of the gold, you know, tinted gold. That's a big thing in the TCM reconstruction. There's so much uh hand painted like tilt 
tinting on the gold that really shines really well yeah. uh, on like whatever video disc rip from the the TCM version. But he's just like in his fucking money cave grubbing that shit throughout the whole movie, <laughs> and it's like you know uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum in his essay said something to the effect of. These couples are here to define the main t- couple. Yeah. Uh, the the older couple shows their humanity, brings out their humanity more, and the Zerkow couple shows their more evil impulses. And I think that that is, I mean, it's the it's the entire push and pull of the film. You have, if you don't know the story of a film, you have Mac and Trina, of course. But before Mac was in there, she was with Marcus. And uh, this guy, Mark, he was a, he is a wild man. He fucked his, up. His <laughs> acting in the beginning is so funny because, yeah, Mac's <laughs> just like, yeah, I'm going to not just do dentistry on this woman i need her like he's up in her <laughs> mouth just like yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna need a little slice of this <laughs> very dr t you yeah know very I mean. dr t moment <laughs> right there dr t loves women he truly loves women but then so uh he's friends with marcus though so he takes him out to lunch and by the way the film uh, all the exteriors are shot on location there's no faking here yeah and they're just like on a pier in san francisco beautiful. inside a restaurant and you get these two windows one on each side it's just a beautiful tableau uh and in this whole scene through intertitle dialogue which is so well realized he convinces his friend to give his girl to him. Uh, and he's just like, yeah, dude, it's fine. Like, I value our friendship. You're a good guy. Let's fucking get it. You can have her. Uh, and obviously from there it goes wrong when uh, it's actually the the lady friend of the Zerkow goblin who sells her the lottery ticket. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Trina wins $5,000, which in 1924, $5,000 was literally the most money you could have. There was like, like how the NBA has a salary cap. Uh, the bank had a $5,000 yeah. salary cap. That was like a gajillion now. Well, in that, like, uh, in that moment where... Where McTeague is convincing Marcus, where he's like, give me your girl. There's like one of my favorite like uh, little moments or, or sequences is just like Marcus sort of like looking out into the sea, sort yeah. of like seething there. Like just the, the intense zone out of finding <laughs> out that your boy is in love with your girlfriend. We should yeah. also note that uh, that Trina's Marcus's cousin as well. Oh yeah, that's true. That is very strange. Yeah, look, he saved her from a toxic relationship. Yeah, well, that's that's the, that, that's the reason Marcus conceded. He's like, "Fuck, like I'm just her cousin." Like, yeah, that's she's, true. She's you guys not, actually have something. yeah. We we have something by blood. Or it's not even that they have something. It's like that guy's at least not her cousin. You that's know? true. That's true. I mean, in the twenties, were they really like? Did they care? I think. I think. Ma- I mean, I'm, incest I'm, porn is still a big thing. <laughs> well, now it's because it's so taboo. Boo. But it, <laughs> but I think back then it's like they wouldn't mind, but it's like it shows kind of like high drive, high intelligence. You yeah, know? you'd be like, Man, maybe I don't want to have babies with my cousin. Yeah, and that's true. You know, you're talking about. I don't either, by the way. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, <laughs> that's good. Uh, I have to see your cousins to see if that's really an accomplishment. <laughs> but. Uh, I think what's interesting about this movie, it is like very like real. It deals in realism, like you said. Like the the sets are very like filmed on location, like footage of like that mining town that uh, McTeague grew up in, and you know how that comes back in. You know, are used very effectively. But it is like very expressionistic. You know, and kind of like the classic silent 
performances that you get from McTeague and Trina, especially Trina. She's she uh, yeah. Zazu uh, Pitts. Zazu mm-hmm. Pitts. She really she really delivers some great stuff because it really you know as the second half kind of kicks in, I would say there's a huge emphasis on their neurosis around money and like uh, just thinking of a random scene. Zazu Pitts kind of uh, even though she has all this money saved up. You know what I mean? She wants to operate like they don't have it. You know, it's kind of a, it's like a good financial plan, I guess. But um, uh, to a point. To a point, of course, <laughs> right? So, and like, you know, her mom's asking for fifty dollars, and she's like, Ugh. you know, she's still asking McTeague for half, even though she has five thousand saved away somewhere. And I love when you know, you know, he gets her to gets him to agree to pay half, even though she's loaded, and then he goes to sleep and she kind of sneakily like takes the rest of the money out of his, <laughs> his pants. And just like the intensity that that moment is treated with when it's just a very insignificant kind of thing. Like, Oh, my mom wants $50. I have $50 quite easily, but like, you know, this kind of paranoia or whatever, this kind of, uh, bad mindset that I have is, you know, turning me to where I'm stealing out of my husband's pants. And I love the mm-hmm. little iris on, on her hands after, yeah. after she, yeah. she, uh, uh, stole it. And, you know, I think, I think it's, that's, what's great about greed. It, you know, it understands the value of money, especially of people who, you know, in the movie don't seem to come from much. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, this shit is dire, you know what I mean? Even, even when you're comfortable, you still feel like you got to hoard it and hoard it and hoard it. And, you know, eventually, you know, it doesn't work too, out too well for them. But uh, I think, you know, showing, you know, kind of the way, you know, the capitalist society is organized to where these people are always on edge like that, even when they have it, you know, yeah. I think speaks a great message. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And I think someone like Chaplin had a lot of those stories in his silent era, the the class ascension stories. Even in his two reelers, there's stuff like the idle class, you know, and there's stuff like the gold rush and uh, city lights, of course, with the pretend millionaire. That That's the, <laughs> the biggest case of it. And uh, I feel like that class ascension comedy, like, I don't know why there's not really much of a place for it anymore, because it's just like in this film, it's played for melodrama, of yeah. course. Mm-hmm. But like, uh, like, it's such an easy stage that. Americans were very fixated on the time on it like at the time like even something like the crowd like it's about wanting to rise above the proletariat yeah. you know and like it, it's just it's so incredible like how yeah as you, like as JT said uh, all these films from back then were about how money and pussy ruined everyone's lives and it's like it's so true that it's hilarious like it, it, took, it took till World War II that we were like I guess we gotta like get a little more introspective with it but like before that it's just like dude it's either money or pussy that's killing these people like, yeah. no, I mean some truth still holds strong to this day. You know well, I mean, yeah. I mean, money or pussy didn't do the Holocaust. No. So I think that's well, kind of okay. <laughs> that's kind of why they changed yeah. their thinking. That's why uh, everyone was so shocked. Everyone's <laughs> like, "What is he doing this for?" Yeah, like <laughs> it, it, Ava Braun, not that bad. Like <laughs> she's like not yeah. even all sitting. Like, you, you really brought it to a place. I, I was my heart dropped there. I mean, my God. <laughs> I love so many small individual moments in this that I guess because of the reconstruction and stuff, it's hard to credit like the edits and stuff like that. But yeah. you know, you know, there's such a strong continuity script like from what Von Strohan wanted this whole thing to be. And mm-hmm. you know, small moments like at one point, 
uh, when McTeague's on the way up after his, like, by God, I got her, that moment, mm-hmm. like, where he's just running around saying, I got her, which is kind yeah. of hilarious. Uh, he celebratorily, like, blows foam off the top of his beer into the <laughs> camera lens. Yeah. And then it goes to fucking uh, Marcus just, like, getting into a drunken spiral rage mode. <laughs> and it's so funny. It's, like, the perfect. I mean, he, he did owe a lot to Griffith. Obviously, Griffith put him on in a, in a professional sense, mm-hmm. putting him in his two epics as an actor. But uh, the intercutting between, like, that and obviously the thing with, like, the uh, the cat and the birds, <laughs> uh, where uh, the cat going after the, the birds in the cage is, like, used as a symbol for the, the love triangle many times. And it gets a little trying, to be honest. It's like, okay, we, we, we saw Intolerance, too. But uh, I, I, I love it. Still. It's not like everyone saw Intolerance. So, you know, someone's got to carry the torch. <laughs> and that's the only torch for Griffith. I was, was going to say. Just uh, the cross. <laughs> I, my arm is raised like this for a gesture. Yeah. Just the cross. That's a historical reference. Yeah. The gesture. <laughs> uh, no, yeah. We, you know, Griffith did bad things. We disavow him. But, um,. With you know, with greed, right? I think I simple as that. Yeah, it's, it's it's it really. Yeah, we don't need to. Hey, man, why are we always doing this weird tiptoe act? Yeah. Um, no, nah, I'm just, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I I, I love greed because it's really it's really simple. You know what I yeah. mean? Like it's not like it's kind of funny that this is I like they like we're gonna name it greed. You know what I mean? Because there's a lot of movies named greed, but I guess they really do use it to their effect because. I think that's what kind of gives it like this um, the simplicity of its message and kind of like how he puts all these other subplots in to kind of just give you a widespread thing. I would have loved to seen the eight hour version because I think the the more complex this gets, the more I don't know. The, I think it really could be kind of like that lost epic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as it ramps up, you know, everyone's relationship is getting horrible with each other. He, the dentistry practice of McTeague is getting exposed because his old friend Marcus uh, sent a letter. Uh, I So Marcus didn't actually snitch on him. Marcus sent him a letter saying he was the authority taking him away, right? Or d- did Marcus actually get the authorities to shut down his dentistry? Uh, at least from the two-hour cut, I assume that he just told the authorities. Okay, I don't yeah. know why I thought, like, it, that. I guess that's the one po- point that is slightly elided, but I don't know why in my head I kind of put two into I thought Marcus was really scheming. Like, but he just snitched on him, I guess. But he gets yeah. his dentistry shut down, and, you know, the tensions between Mac and Trina rise and rise and rise. And Zazu Pitts, it's really heartbreaking uh, toward the end of the movie, toward the end of her part of the movie, I guess, because mm-hmm. there's another you know, half hour to 45 minutes after she bites the dust. But it's it's really, like, sad to see her just suffer from greed as much as anyone else, of course, but also, like, suffering from McTeague's abuse, you know? Mm-hmm. And that, that scene, uh, you know, her final scene, is horrifying. Mm-hmm. The TCM reconstruction plays a variation on the psycho strings, uh, <laughs> yeah. the Bernard Herrmann psycho <laughs> uh, shower theme which I thought was kind of in bad taste. <laughs> like, it's not a horror movie. It's like a melodrama. Like, I don't know. I thought that was kind of a weird choice. But uh, I, not everything about the reconstruction is perfect, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, even in the two-hour cut, I think that it's the kind of great film that mm-hmm. that sort of straddles multiple genres, multiple, like, it, yeah. it has these scenes that have such a 
a strong force that they come to represent like a horror film like yeah, even like yeah. even the yeah all the, the stuff with Zircon yeah. is like yeah, very expressionistic and yeah mm-hmm. uh, I, I I guess I kind of overstated w- what I meant there it's just that I think it being kind of metatextual bringing back mm-hmm. the actual yeah, yeah. psycho yeah. strings uh, <laughs> in the score was a bit much I feel like yeah totally. being like metatextual to a movie that came out afterwards is like yeah. a bit yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a bit much Look, I, I know that history is fluid, and we're doing this whole podcast yeah. because of that. But you know, we all pin, we put a clothespin on our nose for that. We're raising our noses <laughs> at that. We're above that. Basically, it just keeps getting worse and worse until we have a showdown between the two guys in the desert in Death Valley. <laughs> uh, everyone's hunting for Mac. You know, he's causing a ruckus in town. He's out. He's out in Death Valley, and Marcus is like, "Oh, I can find this motherfucker." And the tinting is just beautiful. And he just sneaks up behind. It's just such a great shot of him sneaking up behind a trying to rest Marcus with a gun. Uh, or Marcus sneaks up on a trying to rest Mac with his pistol and just turns him around. And it's just the the gun goes off and shoots through a water canister at one point, And that's like the whole film right there. Basically, mm-hmm. they're fighting over this money and they just killed the thing that's going to let either of them live basically mm-hmm. uh and you know it ends violently but both are just going to die anyway like it doesn't matter yeah. who fucking wins the the tussle that they get into <laughs> they're both about to die yeah i mean it's sort of like the ending of drug war in a way yeah yeah well like with the with the handcuff yeah. to the dead body sort of thing like it has that uh this sort of last 30 minutes or so the the tinting is just so extraordinarily eye searing yeah. with the with the yellow and that like that sort of contrasted with like a like a, a a pink or so during during night scenes. Yeah, there's the it, the intertitle even references the purple of the night, um, and yeah. then it cuts to that tinting, and it's just mm-hmm. gorgeous. Yeah, and uh, I did sort of have sort of vague rationales for for pairing these two films uh, together specifically. Um, I, like we'll discuss them in the next segment also, but it was sort of I saw these two films, and I was especially thinking of this last. Uh, this last half hour as like two films as like sort of journeys into the unknown, like the sort of idea of this sort of physical quest as something as representing something much, much larger. Um, and so and I think both films are, especially they feel so material. They feel so tactile in, in the way that they depict their, depict their um, surroundings. And that that's true. Of course, if, um, throughout the film, like I love how, even though it ends in the desert, I love how he uses the rain in that scene where where the kids actually kind of remind me of Claire's knee um, like when when he's when he's trying to kiss her in that uh, train train stop, and like he he's able to harness these moments um, and lend them a, a much larger context. I think maybe the most obvious examples of this are the are the sort of fantastical shots of like skeletal hands reaching out for the money and things like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and he does that in I think. Wedding March, maybe, um, and I haven't seen uh, all of Strohheim's films, but the way that uh, those moments punctuate and and uh, cast a new light on on the on the melodramas um, is really terrific. And I just love the the staircase in front of the in front of McTeague's office, I think, and then just how he uses that for this uh, this push and pull in, in the sort of war in, inside a character before they succumb to their baser impulses it's very well put um malcolm do you have any thoughts not just on the end but the the grand scope of things the film the reconstruction the notion of a film of history film history itself oh yeah i mean i got a lot of thoughts but i'll I'll keep it short okay i think 
as much as I do appreciate the the four hour extended unrated version of Greed, <laughs> I I think I might have it might have been a more richer experience to watch the theatrical and then maybe do a little bit of reading, you know, mm-hmm. afterwards, you know, of what might have been missing because I feel like it it is like as much as, as sometimes you know it's pulled off with these pictures and you know they're they're kind of edited in a way that gives it a you know a cinematic feeling i i do and maybe you know you and jt feel different eddie but like it does kind of pull me out of it and like you know i kind of find myself uh checking out a little bit more but that being said like it is i think it's what it's trying to do and you know the the you know, the overall you know kind of uh scope of everything shines through so well that you know it, it doesn't really matter i could kind of i see the meat on the bone for what it is and uh you know i i think i i kind of i like this movie feels very uh, ahead of its time in a way you know what i mean like uh you know if like kind of intolerance right is kind of like uh like a humanistic sophisticated look at like intolerance throughout the ages this is kind of more of like this is like uh, male Soulsian. This is like dealing in grim truths. Like yeah. this is the grim truth about like uh-huh. money and where it will lead you and kind of like putting too much focus on it and how, you know, society, you know, makes people too much put too much focus on it. And, you know, it's you know, it's going to end poorly. And I feel like kind of like it's uh, almost a bit of a nihilistic streak to it kind of mm-hmm. gives it a, a modern edge. And like, yeah, it's like like I, you know, the the real of the locations i feel like you know there's nothing that feels kind of stagey about this as sometimes maybe early cinema can feel you know like i, I feel like you just in some basic things like in you know shot reverse shot you could see kind of um i don't know like it, the just certain angles give the room more depth and focal length and mm-hmm. you know and it's small things like this that you know i think i think it's just thematically you know easy to digest and you know on the money so to speak but also i think like the visuals is what really puts it over the top for me and uh you know i'm gonna give it a bullet rating i'm gonna give it four bullets four bullets all right uh ryan any final i know you kind of summarized almost the thesis uh (laughs) of your approach here but uh any any final thoughts and a bullet rating on this one yeah Uh, i should note actually when i first tried to watch um, greed it was in the reconstruction but i couldn't handle the ken burnsy yeah of the yeah. still so I, so I still haven't watched it in full uh but yeah i think that just uh i think it what i what i love about it now is it's sort of the the mix between the hyper concentration of its uh of its narrative and the way that reflects on a larger portrait of this 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 milieu like um Malcolm, you, you're talking about the sort of way that he shoots things. There's the um, in the scene where uh, where where Max's pipe gets broken. It it mostly takes place in these sort of shot reverse shots, these sort of tight close-ups on Mac and Marcus. Before, as Marcus like gets up in anger, then it suddenly cuts to the wi- a wide, and then there's you see all the people seated there in in the saloon. And so the way that it sort of suddenly opens up things, um, opens up things until the until the um until the desert which is this vast expanse this sort of um nothing visible for a hundred miles uh so the way those impulses dovetail together i think is what really makes this so remarkable for me uh for for me uh now five bullets jt what about you buddy 
Um, yeah, I'm going five bullets. I think that, like, even though, I don't know, this is one of the cases, uh, like, I feel like Ryan mentioned with Ambersons, where it's just, like, it, it's such a fascinating object to study, and then so much greatness also, like, shines through of what is present, um, that, I, I, I don't know, I you can like sort of see it and wonder what um an unaltered version of it would be and i feel like that provides of a lot of the pleasure there as well but the parts that do exist there's so many just like fabulous details that i love like uh the big gold tooth in particular <laughs> yes. is such a great symbol and just like i love in the beginning of it where like mcteague is sort of being like you know I would love to get a big gold tooth to hang up in the front of my dentistry. Dude, and this fucking, just... this movie made me want to get some grills. Listen to yeah. some fucking 2000 Southern rap. Exactly. And uh, it's good. just, <laughs> it's just such like a perfect little symbol there. Um, and just to comment more, I feel like on films of that era, I feel like, Thinking about, like, silent film history in general and, like, pre-code stuff, I feel like my mind generally, like, jumps to, like, Chaplin and everything like that. And, like, he certainly does get, like, dark at times. And I feel like potentially part of the reason why greed could have been trimmed down to such an extent is because it is so fucking bleak. <laughs> but I think that, I don't know, there's such an extreme darkness to some pre-code films where it's just like you hear pre-code and you think like oh they get a little body they get a little sexy with it but this is not either of those it's yeah. just like pretty pretty fucking miserable even the parts that like do exist like i think that ending is just so like intense and powerful and like just such a scathing critique of capitalism and, and like I, I don't know at that time I, I i don't know i feel like it's such a damning thing to include where it's just like you leave that in the 20s it's just like fuck like I, I don't know it's so nihilistic but uh yeah no i i love the movie amazing you said five bullets right yeah yeah five uh yeah i'm See, the thing is, I don't think the TCM reconstruction is a five. And frankly, if I just saw the two-hour, 20-minute cut, I don't know if that's a five either. But I think greed as an idea, greed mm. as the hypothetical nine-hour film, greed as a story, of not just a story of film history, but a parable of all of film history and production. Like, the production of greed, that story, is the story of film history, you know? Um, it really is the, you know, the work of the auteur, the potential greed of the auteur, and always the greed of the producer. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, the countless other artists that work on it. Mm -hmm. The source material, obviously, uh, is huge. Uh, the, the performances are huge. The mm -hmm. set decoration is incredible. Uh, the cinematography is n absolutely next level, you know? Um, so I think greed is a five. Uh, even if this version isn't. And I, I really do like TCM construction quite a fucking bit, even if it has some clunker moments in it. 
Um, I'm going to end this segment by quoting from Jonathan Rosenbaum um, a little bit about how TCM was selling this version as like the complete version and, Mm -hmm. you know, in general, these kind of reconstruction efforts of which he works on. He talked about how he worked on the Touch of Evil one. Universal barely paid him, and then TCM wasn't going to pay him for this one, so he said no. Uh, He's like, no, it's not worth that, you know? So this version of greed isn't everything, nor could or should it be. Greed will always be unfinished and incomplete, just as Wells as the Magnificent Ambersons will be. Contrary to rumor and propaganda, capitalism doesn't always have a happy ending. But Schmidlin's work can allow us to use our imaginations to construct what might have been an inconclusive activity and, for precisely that reason, an exciting prospect because it requires our creativity and not simply our desire to take in a great movie and then be done with it. A perpetually unfinished masterpiece throws the ball into our court, which is precisely where it belongs. See, wow. you guys, greed is for the viewers like us. Hell yeah. <laughs> Finally a movie for us. We'll be right back on Extended Clip. My mouth simply certified a total package open up my mouth and you see more kids than a salad. My teeth are mind blowing, giving everybody chills. Call me Joe's coming because I'm selling everybody grill. Hi, I'm Ben Mankiewicz. Welcome to Silent Sunday Night on TCM, where this week we're featuring one of the most notorious movies ever made, at least from a post-production viewpoint. It is also one of the great masterpieces of the silent era. From MGM in 1924, Greed. The movie was as ambitious as it was excessive to hallmarks of its director, Eric Von Stroheim. When Von Stroheim set out to make Greed, he felt the movie going public had fired against 1924, but he felt the movie going public already tired of what he called cinematic chocolate eclair. That was his metaphor for escapist entertainment. But there is definitely nothing frivolous about Greek. The best way to experience this movie would be, if you have to watch it, turn it on TV at home when it comes down to DVD and turn the sound completely off. <laughs> and then as you're cleaning the house or you've got a party going on, you that's, need the kids um, to stay occupied, that'll make this a lot more That's how I had to watch uh, incest porn. <laughs> what? You have to turn the sound down. Then it's just porn. I'm so confused. Okay. <laughs> Could you imagine, like, if we had, like, two guys named Brad Pitt that were both <laughs> awesome? <laughs> and we're back on extended clip. It is Malcolm in the Middle, and you know what that means on this season. We are filling in our little gap years from 27, or sorry, 24 to 26, that is 19, and 16 to 14, that is from the 21st century. Um, let's go reverse chrono. Who has the newest movie here? Who did oh, a fuck. who did a twenty sixteen movie? Oh, 2016. I think I did. That that would yeah. be Ryan. Yeah, I mean, like it's been a while since I've seen this film, but there's a uh, like I tried to choose basically films uh, for nineteen twenty four and twenty fourteen that seem to sort of embody or they like stand out as like these sort of towering achievements or these sort of total films in a sense. Mm-hmm. And so for me, for twenty sixteen, like really. The best example is Tony Erdman uh, by Marinade, uh, which is a film I do uh, really love. And I, I know this is huge because nobody carries the torch for this movie really? anymore, and it hasn't like diminished <laughs> no, that no. much in my head. You know, I liked it when it came out yeah. just fine. I mean, I mean, it's still like show like Cinemascope still had it in their top ten of the decade. That's reverse great. shot. Okay. You know, so like it's still like it's a film that I feel like it in a way it's just sort of. Uh, 
Maybe it's, it's, it's not it's, just. Maybe it's just not cool. Yeah, yeah, in a certain yeah. way. But Cinemascope has the cool picks. Maybe this is all in my fucking head. Yeah, like it's sort of it's it's a thing where it only really gets brought up when people want to want to uh, want to shit talk it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. but for me, like it, it is just this really remarkable uh, like fusion of a lot of different tendencies, especially of the uh, quote unquote Berlin School. The the way it has these sort of long sections that also happen to be incredibly funny. Um, and the I do really love just the the interplay of the um of the two lead actors i think it's just really strong really heartfelt without trying to emphasize that it sort of emanates from the film in a way like the the film sort of seems to like it constantly surprises and and rises up and in really interesting ways for me um i'm pretty certain i love it maybe even more when i when i get to rewatch it but um yeah there are a number of films actually sort of like that in 2016 uh, but but my pick is Tony Erdman. 2016 was a very good year for movies. I'll I'll just I'll say that much. Yes. <laughs> uh, Malcolm, did you have the 2015 one? Yes, I did. And you know, I went with. Oh, first of all, I just want to say. Oh, okay, go. Tony Erdman was almost uh, adapted into a, a American remake. <laughs> yeah. uh, it got greenlit and everything, and it was going to star Jack Nicholson <laughs> in what would have been his final starring role. R.I.P. Jack Nicholson. I wonder if they would have called it Tony Erdman. I'm for some still called. T- my name's Tony Erdman. <laughs> 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 Aranade said that she got that, like the idea from uh, Tony Clifton. So, oh, that's oh. that's actually really sick. But I think that would be awesome, depending on the director. It could have been a sack of shit, but like, imagine if James L. Brooks got that, you <laughs> well, know? You and go. it got to be like a two and a half hour James L. Brooks melodrama. <laughs> like that would have been the best movie ever. I just like the idea of like a Tony Erdman remake being like one of those Robert De Niro, yeah, grandpa <laughs> movies, like <laughs> with grandpa. You can get it for like five bucks at a Seven Eleven. Twenty sixteen also had like. Some of the career best, but still under like p- nobody puts it at career best for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, films by some of my favorite American filmmakers: Sully by Eastwood, Silence by Scorsese. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants some by Linklater. Yeah, nice. so re- those yeah. are each like top four probably from those directors for me. Uh, like those are all masterpieces, pretty much. Three winners. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, you, 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 <laughs> you meaning me? Yeah. The Assassin by Hao Shu Shen. You know, it's funny. I feel like this movie is very similar to How Ha. <laughs> I was about to say the the, the movie we're about to talk about for the second segment. I was going to lead with this is one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen, and then you said The Assassin, and I was like, no, that's more beautiful. <laughs> the yeah. Assassin is just you can't make a movie look much better than The Assassin. I mean, both yeah. both. I I I, I hesitate because I I really liked How Ha. How Ha is that how you said? Yeah, yeah. It's. I feel. I still want to say Zhaoja for some reason, <laughs> but uh, Haha. I mean, I I thought they're you know equally you know visually brilliant, and the assassin was great, and they're both kind of taking like a genre movie, like the classic John Western mm-hmm. wuxia, and kind of uh, you know not not exactly they they do. I mean, Zhaoja's kind of or Haoha. This is this is going to be a problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, is is kind of doing something maybe, um, even really. I mean, both of them, let's be honest, both of these movies kind of go above my head a, a slight bit. Yeah. But I feel like the simple pleasures of kind of these movies being very, like, environmentally focused, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Very low dialogue. Um, you know, the plot, there is plotting in each, but it's like, I think, you know, somewhat simple to follow. I kind of, the assassin maybe a little bit more 
difficult for me to follow, but I, I pretty much got the hang of it. And like, there's just a lot of, you know, kind of emphasis on kind of like these quiet moments and whatnot. And that's how it kind of, uh, uh makes its money, so to speak. Like it, it's the, the, these are both very visually beautiful movies, but like with the assassin, like I, I, I think like you, you know, you saying it's a beautiful movie. It is like on all level, like costuming, design like the emphasis on like kind of like atmosphere and whatnot is really unparalleled and you know kind of what makes the movie interesting you know what i mean and like i kind of like that um you know the main thing with the assassin the titular assassin uh played by shu ki is that she she they're always like fighting people but never killing them you know what i mean she Mm kind of has a hesitation to kill you know because it is it's a complex situation you know these are people she doesn't want to exactly slaughter right away in most of these uh, confrontations uh and yeah i think it's it's just one of those movies that you can just really get it's a visual feast and you know you really get lost in them and you know great movie 2015 absolutely um jt you had uh a what what did you do? <laughs> I did we I realized I, I'm just realizing now I feel like we fucked up the timeline did in we some both do, way. Did I did twenty fourteen. No, I did twenty fourteen. Oh, it's fine. Yeah. Whatever. We could just have an extra twenty fourteen movie. Yeah, no, but uh We're just talking yeah. about these time periods. These are the these exactly. are two periods exactly. that we're talking about. Twenty fourteen, that's one of the best film years ever. Yeah. So we we gotta cover as much as we can, really. And with this like the to get to to take us to a cosmic level in Oh, I know our, where you're going, brother. In our in our time travel film history bang bus going forwards but then going backwards as well. Are we really going anywhere at all? Um, and with this movie that I uh, saw, Crazy World. Uh, oh, wow. By... I, I thought you were doing either Inherent Vice or Interstellar. No, no. I. Uh, it's not. This is not a, this not is not a big here. movie, I, but I feel like. Uh, it's, I wanted to talk a little bit about Wakaliwood in just like this film history project of ours in general, um, because the crazy world directed by Isaac Godfrey, Jeffrey Nabwana or Nabwana IGG as he is called. Um, like it's weird, this movie, because it like got like, it was it's listed as like a 2014 release date, which I think was when it was initially first completed. But the version that I watched, I think got like a wider release in 2020. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there that is one the played at TIFF. And that yeah. was like the biggest audience that a Nabwana IGG film has ever had. Yeah, so. yeah, it played at TIFF. And the funny thing about that is they edited in like something for 2020 where there's like a subplot of like video piracy police like cracking down on you for like illegally like stealing the film and like kind of making fun of like pirate like the notion of like cracking down on piracy in general it's very funny they're like they're they like drop the piracy police like drop bombs on people who've like torrented the film uh it's uh it, it, it like takes you out of the narrative a little bit to do sort of like a meta thing with it 
But I don't know. I feel like uh, just today uh, there was that piece where Tarantino was calling uh, 2022 this year one of the worst years for film. And I feel Mm -hmm. like there is there is like an like I don't know movie like the state of movies at large I feel like is very shitty but I love this type of like no budget filmmaking that's popping up in like Wakaliwood we've obviously been like big champions of Matt Farley Damon Packard with like there are obviously a lot of people who are doing like shitty things with digital and just shooting digital like as film and not like really exploring like the differences there but i feel like people who have like little to no resources are forced to create innovations and there are a lot of weird like special effects in like Wakaliwood movies um and like fun green screen stuff and it's just I, I don't know i think that's like those are the most promising forefronts for digital filmmaking for me and i would be remiss if we didn't go through film history without uh mentioning uh wakaliwood and in particular crazy world uh it's like a funny little action movie uh the tiger gang is back and Mr. Big, who is actually very short, is, like, abducting kids for some sort of, like, blood sacrifice. But little does he know he has abducted the Waka stars. And uh, all of these little Hollywood kids are, like, little kung fu action heroes as well. And, like, can kick your ass. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, it's just a wild, like, fun, pretty quick time. Uh, it has the, I don't know, all the staples of what you would imagine for a Will Hollywood production. Like, you get some, uh, like, the video Joker being like, this is the best children's movie ever. Thank like, you for throughout not doing it. the accent. I thought you were going to, I thought you were about to. <laughs> no, no, no. Eddie, no, Eddie no, no. He sat up. He was like. On the ready, on the boards. That I have a little bit more tact than that. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I uh, just wanted to bring that up. It was a great time. Uh, yeah, Nabuana is incredible. Like, if you see, like, uh, who killed Captain Alex or anything mm-hmm. like that, like, he's, you know, it's it's crazy. If you look up Wakaliwood, the thing that Google gives you is uh, headquarters Uganda, budget two hundred dollars, <laughs> <laughs> like for the studio. Like I don't know what that means. <laughs> Uh, but those guys are fucking making awesome movies that are mm-hmm. just like about the joy of making movies generally. Like even if they don't have like meta filmmaker subplots, you know, it's like they are action movies about how much fun it is to make an action movie in the pure joy of the art for people who hasn't been ruined for by these horrible, you know, the big distributors and, you know, big tentpole blockbuster release. I'm looking at you, Mr. Fableman. Uh, (laughs) All these Fablemen. All these Fablemen (laughs) fucking selling toys. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, So I will talk about 1925's Seven Chances because there were other silent movies in this era. It wasn't just greed. There were quite a few ones. Also, uh, Keaton's The General, which is kind of his biggest one. Which which could be our 1926 film. Yeah, exactly. Like That that could be the 26 one, but I'm going to go 25 instead Mm -hmm. and talk about Seven Chances. Uh, Just to cover 26 real quick. 
the general come on it's buster on a train for an hour and a half like the bridge falls yeah, yeah. uh come on uh, he's fighting he, he, look was he fighting on the right side uh you know depends who you ask that's all i, I forgot about, about that, that. yeah it's yes. the confederacy <laughs> Well, it's about depiction, not endorsement. Oh, of course, you know? of course. I forgot uh, about that. But Seven Chances is also about depiction, not endorsement. Uh, <laughs> it is one of the most silent film comedy plots ever, uh, <laughs> where he's a uh, a struggling businessman who just learned that he is uh, to get an inheritance of like five hundred thousand dollars or something like that from a dead, uh, a dying relative, but only if he is married by the eve of his twenty seventh birthday, which is tonight for him. Oh, fuck. <laughs> uh, just like tonight is my 28th birthday. Oh, if I am not married by 8 p.m., the podcast <laughs> is over. So, look, I only invited a couple ladies to the party tonight. But they've been <laughs> a it's a high-pressure situation. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I better inherit that money tonight is all I'm saying. But uh, I see why you chose that movie. Wow, that's yeah, so no, it's, it's It's such an awesome concept. And uh, yeah. so he has his sweetie that he's pursuing throughout. And it's the classic comedy thing of she sees him whoring himself out going for all these ladies. Because oh. uh, he's like, I just need to marry someone, you know. Uh, and she's like, oh, some, just anybody, not me, you know. Uh, so then he, it, the whole thing turns into just like... Uh, Seven Chances comes from a, one of the middle set pieces, yeah. actually, where they go to a social club and he right. recognizes seven women and uh, his buddy writes all their names down and he approaches each and every one and each name gets crossed off when he gets rejected <laughs> by them. And it's just incredible. There's one long take of like three of them going up and down the stairs and him just tailing one and then getting tailed by the other <laughs> and going back and forth. And it's hilarious. And then they put an ad in the paper and hey, maybe it's a little media commentary, you know, yeah. uh, they they didn't want him when it was just you know the people spreading the word that he was going to marry uh, into that that they would be marrying into money. But when they get it in the paper, uh, it's official. all over the place. Yeah, nah, uh, that's the other thing. Just like the last silent film I talked about for this segment, the silent comedies were all just about like putting a contest in the paper. Yeah. Like, <laughs> there's just like a, a newspaper contest of some sort. So, uh, you know, first woman to show up gets half of the inheritance from marrying him. You know, there's no divorce. You should have just started with that. That seems like a pretty. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So uh, this is a classic uh, getting out of the friend zone movie. It's yeah, right. Yeah. So yeah. just needs five hundred thousand dollars. Once he puts the ad in the paper, you know the church where he used to be married gets flooded with every woman in town, every old bag and yeah. di- the dimes and the old bags flocking. in between. Yeah, uh, and they all just chase him for thirty minutes. <laughs> so it's just like a one like mini set piece after another connected for like 25 minutes or so of just finding a new way for him to avoid women in a funny way. <laughs> Running down the street, he blends in with policemen at one point, and then the policemen see all the women and they get scared and hide, which is a pretty <laughs> great thing. Uh, there is a boulder avalanche that yeah. he sets loose, which inspires the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark, wow. which, you know, hey, Mr. Fableman, play a song for me. That's, you know. <laughs> uh, and it's just like... Such an inventive movie for physical comedy. There are also, you know, look, if you thought that The General was offensive, this is way more offensive. Oh, there is unrated? a scene, yeah, there is a scene where he, at his most down bad, sees a woman from behind, just like in her coat. Oh. And he's like, okay, I'll speed up to her. And it's a great tracking shot, actually. Yeah. I love the camera movement in silent films, just as an yeah. aside. Uh, it just, 
it's just so different. It just hits different. But he finally approaches her, and then he sees that she's a black lady, and he runs off scared, well, basically. Jesus Christ. I was going to yeah. make a snide joke, but I won't. That. Yeah, there's a couple <laughs> moments like that. It's like, all right, Buster, we get it. Okay, Buster. I guess he really was fighting for the Yeah, that, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, it's not like my favorite Buster Keaton or anything, uh, and neither is the general, but it's, it's really great. Sounds I, funny. I, I love seven chances. Um, and I'm not going to spoil what happens at the end. <laughs> Please don't. We'll be right back on extended clip. about How Huff from 2014 by Lisandro Alonso. Uh, now, 2014, this is a year that has some of our favorite films ever. Yeah. We got Inherent Vice. We got Gone Girl. We got Birdman. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> or, the arrog- or The Arrogance of Virtue, as some like to call I it. I think it's, or isn't <laughs> it Ignorance? Yeah, The Ignorance. Uh, or the, the Virtue of Ignorance. The Virtue of Ignorance. <laughs> I like The Arrogance of Virtue. <laughs> the virtue. Yeah, that that kind of sounds hard, right? That's his one about virtue signaling. Yeah. <laughs> Bardo. Oh, dude, I can't wait for Bardo. Yeah, I think are we gonna do a? Are we gonna do a Bardo mini Bardo as well? Yeah. I think so, man. Bardo episode. Bardo episode, dude. Absolutely. Um, yeah, Bardo. Can't wait for the FX adaptation in fifteen years. <laughs> yeah, I need a. I need a. What is it? Two and a half hours. I might need a theatrical cut. Like nice little ninety minute of that. <laughs> Street style. I think he cut like 40 minutes out of it after the Venice premiere. Yeah. Damn. So what I was saying, though, was, you know, Inherent Vice, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Goodbye the Language, Hill of Freedom, Welcome to New York, Horse Money, American Sniper. Why is it Howha that you wanted to bring? Interstellar. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, Howha is a film that's definitely, like, it's sort of, a film that I think about a lot. It mm-hmm. it sort of epitomizes, I think, a, like it feels like a sort of culmination or a high point at least for a cer- for like you know a certain strand of slow cinema, I guess you could say. And I think Alonso, um, with his debut La Libertad, he also had a another sort of like it was I think that was two thousand four, and that was also a like a sort of like a statement film in some way because it was just I think seventy minutes or so uh, of of like a, a, a woodcutter going about his work over over the span of a day, mm-hmm. but the way he incorporates he incorporates like the the falling of the trees, the sort of rhythms of the work is is very um, hypnotizing. Uh, should we know that Mike D'Angelo I think gave it a five? <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> That's not five stars, folks. That is a point oh five out of one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for. And so I think that Hauha, which was the first Alonso I've seen, I haven't seen his uh, his middle two films, um, but Hauha 
is just a very special film to me because it is like it's almost as elemental as as cinema can get in a certain way like it's uh at least half of it is just watching Viggo Mortensen first ride then then walk in landscapes and it's a and like in really beautiful really varied sort of landscapes in this sort of desert that and like it has a like if you wanted to compare it to like a a, a western master Ford is probably the closest but it also has this very mystical feeling about it and then it's not necessarily like there are certainly mystical things that happen but a lot of it is just seeing him framed against the horizon or him climbing up these these very large rocks it it just feels um the way especially that at the beginning it has all these different potential elements and it pairs them away one by one until Mm -hmm. it gets to that point i think it's just a really uh it's it's really weirdly stirring for me it just has such a mystery and it feels very captivating um in in all senses of the word for me yeah i mean you pointing out ford is really my biggest takeaway from this was that somebody really made the freaking woke searchers <laughs> uh, no but it really did click with me what this was doing with the searchers almost as a biblical text mm-hmm. like th- this film assumes that its audience is cinephiles and it assumes that cinephiles know what the searchers is i think and that it is a kind of canonical text because when he first steps out to look for his daughter and He's on horseback, and he's in a, a you know he's in an eighteen eighties uniform. It's not like the beginning of uh, it, it's like the cavalry trilogy of mm-hmm. John Ford's that era kind of, um, and the guy who was jacking off in the beginning is pointing <laughs> him in a direction. Uh, I forgot that it, that's how it begins. Yeah, like, yeah, I want to get back to that in a sec. But the Fuck. way that the clouds are shot and the way that it's framed and the point of the horizon line um, is absolutely recalling the searchers, especially because of what the narrative setup is. He just lost his little girl uh, to potentially who he believes are savages, mm-hmm. uh, and he needs to rescue her uh, before she becomes one of them. And uh, so, yeah, it, it's literally like the searchers kind of uh, from a more colonialist viewpoint mm-hmm. rather than the American West mm-hmm. uh, and the, you know, American enterprise going over the Native Americans with uh, westward expansion. This is more about South American colonization from Europe. Uh, I guess you could pair it well with something like Zama, which mm-hmm. I was thinking about throughout. Yeah. Both of these are very elemental films, mm-hmm. uh, very sparse films in terms of their plotting, but they kind of are these post-colonial texts that are kind of asking you to do the ideological legwork uh, mm-hmm. while they're more interested in aesthetics. And I also kind of like that choice for mm-hmm. both of them yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. because it is a little open for interpretation. I think Zama's a little more cut and dry with his post-colonial messaging, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think this one is a little more open to interpretation because it's not in Argentina, technically. it's They're looking for Hauha. Uh, that's, as the opening crawl descri- describes, very Lucas-esque. Uh, <laughs> you know, we got Mr. Fableman and fucking <laughs> Mr. Yoda both influencing <laughs> our movies this week. Uh, but... Yeah, it's like it takes place in a desert that doesn't exist that devours everything, as Mm -hmm. one character says. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that that is more of kind of an ideological sandbox to let Mm -hmm. the viewer fill in like what it's trying to do, you know? Yeah. And I think it being that sandbox, right? I think it has to, if you're going to do that exercise, you have to aesthetically hit on the mark very Mm -hmm. heavily. And, you know, boy, does this movie do so, right? Oh, I mean, so for those who haven't seen a still from it, Ryan, what is this film doing on an aesthetic level? Just like the general um, approach that it's taking. Sure. I mean, it's an Academy ratio, uh, like generally preferring long shots, ones that uh, like it's it's free to pan and things like that, but I don't think there's an actual uh, camera track Mm -hmm. and frequently just uh, shooting these characters in these wide landscapes, Uh, like especially early on, even though it's a desert, like it's sort of the desert that is shrubs and things like that. So it's green and then the, the blue, um, of the uniforms, uh, especially Viggo Mortensen's, really stands out, mm-hmm. and so the um, it just frequently just observes as they enter the frame and exit, oftentimes just from from different um, different parts of the screen. Like sometimes he's uh, he's riding forward, then you get him riding in from the from the lefts, and that creates this really great um, spontaneity. Uh, even though it's obviously very controlled it has this free sort of quality to it um, that, that really enlivens things. Yeah, and it also has not just academy ratio, but rounded yeah. edges mm-hmm. in the frame, mm-hmm. uh, which were a little distracting at first, but once you get the whole, I really like that look, and it kind of evokes something about greed a little bit mm-hmm. for me uh, with these wide compositions that are totally. often washed in one color, yeah. like the tinting of silent films. And the curved edges, like you see on some silent film presentations, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that this really is like, despite being, you know, very much a 21st century slow cinema art film, uh, and that is the aesthetic wheelhouse it operates in. I think there is just like little things you can pull from all of film history here, because like any responsible period filmmaker i think alonzo is kind of looking at all the and especially this comes in with the kind of twist at the end Mm -hmm. of the movie but even without that he's looking at all of the time from the 1880s when this starts uh like the earliest narrative point in this film to now when he is shooting the film uh he's looking to all of those for aesthetic inspiration you know Mm -hmm. and uh, i i think that's the smart thing to do as a period filmmaker worth noting also that the that the next film he is shooting called Eureka, which is like the most anticipated film for me um, coming up. It's, it seems like he's going intolerance mode. Like he's going across four, four time periods again with Viggo Mortensen. Oh, uh, it's called Eureka. So yeah, that sounds awesome. JT, what did you think of this? Your general thoughts? Ryan bringing up uh, Viggo. I just wanted to, I wanted to talk about his character for a little bit because I think like in terms of like, commentary on sort of like the colonizer like obviously like there is room for this to be like open to interpretation but i feel like particularly now or i mean like in like right-wing groups there's obviously like this sort of like revelrous fantasy of like people who did colonizing as like sort of rugged individualists and very strong sort of macho men. But I feel like this kind of breaks that down in a very funny way because Vigo's character is such like a cucked little loser, <laughs> like throughout this. And I mean, I, I think it also gets at it like 
with you had mentioned like the dude just sort of jacking off in the pond <laughs> like earlier it's sort of like deconstructing those like colonization myths in a very funny way because Vigo just like really doesn't want to be there like he just wants to go home like he is like he's bad at speaking spanish like he feels uncomfortable with like the men he's leading like he doesn't really know like he's unaware that like his daughter is like involved with like one of uh like the younger soldiers and then like even when he like extracts it like his daughter is like taken and he like extracts his revenge on like cordo like he's already like fucking like laying there dying like he's such like a weak little coward and you just sort of watch him be alone and sad and stare into the sky and just be like i I mean it's interesting and i love that like introspection that you get with that character especially those moments where it's just like the long shot of him like laying down on the ground, like looking up at the sky where it's like you can sense just misery in being there. But I thought that is like an interesting perspective and like probably more true to life uh, in terms of people doing colonization because they're like removed from their like home and like doing like a job that's like they have this conception of native people as like savage and it's a harsh like scary environment where they're just sort of wandering into the abyss the opening speaking of savage i mean it's the it's the most uh like easy uh turn you could do in a post-colonial movie like look who the real savages are but (laughs) i do love that it's just the beginning is like we see vigo with his daughter she asks for a dog and then we cut to one of his compadres jacking off in a pond. Yeah. And then he comes up to Vigo. Vigo's like mildly disgusted, <laughs> but he just keeps his distance. Mm-hmm. And then they meet up and it's like, hey, man, can I trade you a horse for your daughter's pussy? Yeah. Your 14 year old daughter. Yeah. Pussy. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's insane. And he's like, well, no, probably not. Yeah. No, that's not uh, cool. And he's like, can I see the horse? <laughs> uh, no, but, uh, so she disappears in the middle of the night. Um, she is already, you know, as we said, involved with one of the boys, uh, the local boys. Uh, and we don't see her again until the very end. The rest of the yeah. film is Vigo's journey to find her. And that is the entire film. It's mm-hmm. like, it's just, as you said, him passing through landscape slowly. Yeah. And I think uh, it really puts an emphasis on. I don't know, kind of like I really feel the distance he has to travel sometimes. Like it puts an emphasis on being, you know, real to life. And that kind of adds to kind of, uh, you know, what JT's talking about of kind of uh, taking the rug out under of, you know, the perce- the perception of like the no- the intelligent, strong, you know, colonialist who like mm-hmm. dominated everyone. It's like. It's like, damn, it's like, I don't care if you dominate a country. It seems like walk, walking up that hill just to get where you're going seems more <laughs> tougher than anything to you. You know what I mean? And, and, and like, I love, I mean, you know, he's, he's a fuck up. Like, I feel like even when he realizes his daughter's missing, right, he kind of has this stilted weird thing where he has to put on his uniform mm-hmm. and his sword and his gun. And he's just like, you know, sitting there and he, you know, he's just playing with his sword a little bit. And it is like. You know what I mean? You know, if 
why don't you just go get on your horse and get to it? You know what I mean? Maybe she's close by. And, and, but I think, you know, it's it's all to uh, this end of kind of portraying Vigo as someone who is, you know, purely wandering, lost. And, uh, and like, often, you know, whenever he does something, it's too late. You know, he shows up to, you know, the the guy who ran off of his daughter and, like, you know, this guy's obviously just got freshly killed and, you know, he's too late or he hears a random um, yell of, uh, I forgot, what's that guy's name with the Z? Z uh, oh, uh, Zaluaga. Zaluaga. He's someone, a missing colonel. Yeah, someone, someone like, there's like a random scene where like someone yells that guy's name and like he just kind of stays behind the hill until it's kind of clear and, you know, it's just, I, I, I think... Uh, and that's what also kind of gives makes this the fastest slow cinema movie <laughs> I've ever seen. Kind of like you said, it's a visual variation, Ryan. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you talking about um, this kind of being like almost like a, and maybe apex is the wrong term, but like like kind of this slow cinema movement kind of culminating to maybe this is its biggest, you know, art house hit of slow cinema or, you know, or whatever. It kind of, it makes me think of stray dogs too, mm -hmm. which kind of goes in the opposite direction. Right, maybe right. it's a, it's a much more, uh, stray dogs is less funny, less, <laughs> less <laughs> funny, more brutal and very like more controlled than yeah, ever. Absolutely. Where, whereas this kind of has almost, you know, a free flowing kind of, uh, you know, it still works in like traditional plot, uh, things where it's like, Oh, what's going to happen next with, you know, with the daughter and whatnot, even though it, upends that kind of with its uh uh you know twist ending as you called mm -hmm. it so i i was really f fascinated that you brought it up in that point because it does kind of feel like a culmination of the slow cinema movement i mean if Simon lang doesn't release another feature until well i guess he has the your face documentary mm -hmm. but like days is kind of yeah. you know yeah the one that people actually would see you know mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. uh i think that's a very good point yeah, I mean, free-flowing is an interesting way to describe it because, like, the camera work is so locked down, but at the same time, the landscapes change throughout this journey. Yeah. It's like, you know, Ryan said it's as elemental as a film can get. I think that, real, like, it's the landscape is the most dynamic thing in this movie. Yeah. And so Alonzo is just, you know, he, set, he has a good setup, a good formal conceit, a good enough narrative conceit, good enough narrative conceit, uh, and an amazing performance by Vigo. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's like... Yeah, you just kind of let nature do the course for you almost. Uh, not to say he's an uninvolved director or anything like that, but I think the the way he uses the terrain is like next level. Sometimes mm -hmm. less is more, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? And mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, once you pare back things, it's like simple pleasures like that can hit even harder. So that, mm -hmm. you know, that is a directorial choice, even if it requires less effort, maybe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, yeah, I like, I guess to sort of jump to the end there where that yeah, let's has talk about that, that ending. it like, that's a big swing. And I admire, like it like really hit like hard for me. And I feel like, I mean, building to a point, I think where it's just like he Vigo's character obviously fails and is just kind of like forgotten by history like find like mm -hmm. that, that that's kind of what i got from her like finding that toy soldier uh at the end but i i don't know i think for a film to do like a time jump like that that's so ambitious for something where 
the first portion of the movie feels like so intensely rooted in that setting. I feel like that would be something that would be easy to whiff and like miss like a level of profundity there. But it, I don't know that all like the, the time jump and just sort of having the young girl uh, like wander off with the dogs um, and just the fact that it's set in that mansion, like I, I, it really works for me. Yeah, it's um, so spoiler alert. He Lissandro Alonso kind of goes the village mode slightly <laughs> and rather than the village where it's like the reality of the film was a simulation. This one is like we cut from the voice. So first of all, he follows this dog into a cave where he meets a woman who also speaks Danish. And you're like, okay, <laughs> we're definitely exiting reality with this scene like completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, this Danish woman who has a cave mansion uh, and then he <laughs> exits it and she says, uh, what does she say in the voiceover? First of all, yeah. And then her voice takes over the voiceover of the mm-hmm. movie and she says, what is it that makes life function and move forward? Mm-hmm. And then we cut to like church bells in a mansion and the girl that he's been looking for is sleeping and you're like, wait a second. There's like a radiator in the corner. That can't be period <laughs> yeah. appropriate. Is that bad set dressing? And then you kind of <laughs> hear, you know, like a, a game on TV and a dishwasher's in the background. And you're like, oh, this is the village. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, so what it would imply there is kind of open-ended, right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. it could mean that, you know, it's, it's kind of a symbolic leap. We mm-hmm. leap forward in time and he never found her. And she's back in Denmark at a you know, a mansion because, you know, whatever, we're, we're back home, kind of. Or it was her dream, kind of. Because, uh, like, or even, I, I don't know. I, I think a dream thing makes sense only because she, it the, the time jump ends with her waking up and, that, yeah. and a bell, yeah. you know. That's, mm. like, the most obvious symbol pointing it toward dreamland for me, which makes sense to me because of how vague everything is. There's all these things about that missing colonel where it's like some people think he was dressing up as a woman and still hanging out some places and other people had no idea if he was still around. And then, of course, you know, the Danish lady with the cave mansion and all of that stuff is just like really dreamlike when you look back on it, of course. Uh, and it, it's very much like, you know, uh, a you were there and you were there and you were there moment <laughs> yeah. when the dogs are there uh, <laughs> at the end. Uh, but I, I, I do like that. Um, I, I think what it means, I'm not sure. Also, the searchers coming back to that, that being what a person dreams of. And, you know, as the fableman <laughs> said, movies are dreams. Uh, so, so like, I, I think there's a lot of different ways you can interpret that ending. I'm I'm still kind of working on it. Mm-hmm. Ryan, what what did you think? Because I I'm still kind of I don't know what to think. Yeah, for me, I mean, like, uh, first we should mention that the woman, uh, in in the cave who's uh, older than Vigo, but it's implied perhaps that that she's his granddaughter. Like yeah. it's a sort of it's a leap there, and I think that um, the ending for me, like I read it sort of, I think what really it revolves around is just where it is mm-hmm. not um like i don't necessarily see it as a dream but i see it um i see the time jump and especially the 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 last fade out from the from the pond back to the beach with yeah. a bunch of seals on it like there's a like it's left very vague whether it's 
in Argentina or or in, um, in yeah, Denmark. Yeah, because we saw that field with all the seals in it in the very beginning yeah. when the guy was jacking it. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, is that the same location? I mm-hmm. thought it. I thought it was, and then I looked online, and it says at the end like uh, she wakes up in Denmark, mm-hmm. and I was like, well, we gotta check the fact. We gotta fact check that review that I was reading. I guess <laughs> fact check because fact checkers. I I don't. Th- I think the lying New York Times might be onto something mm-hmm. there, saying that it's Denmark. Cause I don't think it is Denmark. Yeah, yeah. I'm I I'm not entirely yeah. sure. I do think it's a really good movie, though. That's yeah. that's what I'm saying is that it's a really good movie. <laughs> um, I'm giving it three and a half. I'm going to give it four and a half bullets. And like, I think, Ryan, I think what you said is maybe what I thought. I thought, yeah, like this is just where this is what happened to the land years later. Mm-hmm. But that makes a, perfect sense. Yeah, too. yeah, like, yeah. That absolutely made sense. Mm-hmm. I think it's because I, li- I read a lying reviewer, <laughs> a lying critic <laughs> said that it ends back in Denmark. But uh, one of the most visually stunning movies I've seen, really. It's, it's an amazing looking movie. Ryan? Yeah. Uh, for me, it's. Like, it's sort of still, like, it's maybe as much for what it represents as for the film itself. But for me, it's a five-bullet film. It's just the, what it does with the Western, what it, what it does with all of these different elements swirling around before it moves into this very strange mode. Like, it's sort of, it's it's as much a film about process for me as, as anything else. And that, of course, categorize, um, characterizes... La Libertad as well, uh, but like the just the amount of time that he spends on just watching Vigo drink water or stuff like that, and, or trudge up a hill, it just has this great potency for me um, that it that it certainly it like it lingers. It reminds me of uh, uh, Marguerite Duras's India song, uh, which is one of my favorite films as well. Just this this sort of displacement of of the colonialist, just like this sort of hypnotic state that they're in even as they're moving through these very tactile spaces, just the, the way that those impulses are, are, um, are incorporated in, I think is just uh, extraordinary. Um, yeah, I'm going for bullets. I just, I don't know, there's such a richness into like how interpretive it is because there's just so much room to breathe with uh, these landscapes. I mean, honestly, being lost in like a mystic dream of a John Ford movie is kind of like a wet dream of mine. <laughs> uh, but like, uh, I mean, obviously without the the misery involved in this film, but yeah, no, it's great. And just like I, I, the, like the aesthetic pleasures, I feel like first and foremost, like are overwhelming, but I, I really love uh, the investigation of colonialism there as well. I think that's going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. We covered uh, a full rating spread there. Yeah, yeah. we did. <laughs> we, nice. We're yeah. really going across the board here. I like that. Um, on to our emails, uh, extended clip podcast at gmail.com is where you can always reach us. No personal emails this time. I gotta be honest. I think someone's signing us up for some spam. I don't like that. Uh, really don't trolls? like that. The trolls are at it again. What's, what's the spam? What, what did they do? Um, just like them. best finance today, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Damn, that's that's kind of cool. We did get that's not even one, funny. Though. Yeah, I know. We did get a good one, though, from pressinfo at JT, you want to do Berlin again uh, this coming year? February? Uh, would we go there? I, I think we can get screeners. <laughs> Damn, we should go. Okay. We should just go. <laughs> we should go to Berlin. <laughs> Let's go to Berlin. <laughs> 
It's All official. right. Uh, extended <laughs> clip reading to our round two live in Berlin coming soon. We, but they better like they better have like a, a green room for us or something. Like there better be accommodations as yeah, well. Absolutely, my rider is getting long these days. <laughs> Peanut M Ms, Diet Coke. I can't really think of anything else that I would require. Car service. Yeah, and then the other stuff's off the books. You know. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, kind of uh, other kind of service. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, no one really latched onto that one. Um, next I think it week, speaks for itself. Next week, what an episode we will have for you next week or the week after, whatever, whenever we drop the next. <laughs> whenever episode, we feel like it, it's going to be Carl Theodore Dreyer's "The Passion of Joan of Arc" and Paul Thomas Anderson's "The Master." Films with really good close-ups and yeah. uh, a lot more. So we will do that. Uh, until then, do you guys have any final words? JT, do you have anything that you've just been dying to tell the people at home? Um, love wins. I, love I wins. think that. Absolutely, I think that's it. It gets better. It ge- hey, <laughs> for those who haven't experienced love yet and don't know what have just been taking L's, no W's in your life. It gets better. Yeah, yeah sorry if you're loveless out there. Oh, okay. Kevin Shields. <laughs> All right, bye. Uh, Old school jazz. Or, well, I listen to a lot of uh, like Beethoven shit too. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, like classical, like classical music too. Well, under eight, yeah, Beethoven can really. Yeah, yeah, turn yeah. It yeah up. So I listen to a lot of classical music, like when I'm just. Joaquin Andujar and Brett Saberhagen. I don't have a joke here. I just love saying those names. Um, Dr. T loves women. He truly loves women. This year, the Academy Board of Directors has voted to present the honorary Oscar to one of the movie's great visionaries. Michelangelo Antonioni. Tell us about the fire side of the marketplace or in a movie. Almost any story is almost certainly some kind of lie. Tell it by the fire side or in a marketplace or in a movie. Almost any story is almost certainly some kind of lie.